This episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. What is your purpose this year? What new things will you learn? For a free 14-day trial with unlimited access, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Probably science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Andy Wood. And, uh, uh I'm, I'm quite excited today because we, we have... Frank Wilczek, who is the author of Fundamentals, Ten Keys to Reality, a new book that is coming out, but also our very first ever Nobel Laureate. Hello. So, hi Frank, <laughs> thank you, thank you for joining us. I'm uh, looking forward yeah. to it, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter how many times we tweet at Henry Kissinger, nothing. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, so, y- you've, you've written this uh, book, but before... I, I would love to, before we get into the book itself, and I know you do yeah. talk about it in one of the later chapters in the book, but I'd love to just briefly ask about your Nobel Prize and what sure. what it was in. Because this is this came from work that you started as a student, right? You were the, yes. your supervisor was doing this work. You did it with him and years later or decades later, you end up with a Nobel Prize. Yes. Yes, we were, we worked, we worked together and, uh, we got, we uh, made some very rapid, dramatic progress, and quite a bit later got a Nobel Prize for it. They um, so I'll just go ahead and tell you what it was about. There are please four fundamental forces in nature. There's gravity and electromagnetism, which have had wonderful theories since uh, the the mid-19th century in the case of electromagnetism. And gravity had Newton's theory, of course, back in the 17th century. And then Einstein's uh, more powerful version of gravity, general relativity, uh, in the 1916, basically. Uh, Then, but in the course of the 20th century, when people started to study inside atoms and what, what you needed to describe uh, in particular, what was going on in atomic nuclei, uh, they found that those two forces were not adequate. Uh, and so two new forces were introduced. Uh, there could have been more, but but gradually, and, and people were very confused in the early days, but gradually it settled down to the idea that there were two new forces, which very imaginatively became called the strong and the weak force. And I'll just tell you about the strong force at the moment, because the, the weak force is more complicated, and it's also not what we did. But the, the, str- the strong force is the force which uh, most simply described in the natural world. It's what holds atomic nuclei together. So uh, atomic nuclei uh, famously can be described as being made out of protons and neutrons. And gravity is much, much too weak to hold it together. And uh, electric forces actually want to blow it apart because the, the protons are positively charged. and, positive, right. so, did, and light so two different protons repel. would want to repel each other. Like That's right. And the, neut- and the neutrons are electrically neutral, so they don't care. <laughs> but not, nothing in the electromagnetic force holds it together, quite the contrary. So a new force was needed. And it had to be very powerful, uh, because nuclei are very small, so they're tightly bound, despite what electromagnetism wants to blow them out. Uh, and so it became 
a top of the agenda item in 20th century physics, really almost coinciding with the discovery of atomic nuclei in the very early 20th century, to figure out what that force is. And many experiments of different kinds were done, and a lot of facts were found. But there was no beautiful theory uh, worthy of standing beside Maxwell's equations and general relativity. And, uh, and furthermore, when people studied protons and neutrons, they found that they were actually complicated objects. The more closely you studied them, the more complicated the interaction seemed. And uh, as part of that, you found that when you collided protons and neutrons, you produced whole zoos of new particles, which are unstable, that were unexpected. These are called hadrons. And the description of hadrons runs into the uh, hundreds of entries and fills very large books. So, but in uh, a long story uh, yeah. is that people started... Uh, finding, uh, uh, made pictures of insides of protons using very sophisticated cameras and found that there were uh, little, there's substructure. And then it became interesting to try to find the equations that described how those little more fundamental bits interact. And now we call them quarks and gluons. And what we did was guess on the basis of some very indirect experimental clues, uh, what the equations that govern how quarks and gluons interact are. So sort of for the strong interaction, we did what Maxwell did for the electromagnetic interaction. We provided the equations and very importantly, uh, showed how they might be demonstrated, their truth might be tested. So it's not so easy to uh, to test what's going on in those circumstances, but we, we found some handles on that. And so now our proposal is a very beautiful set of equations that is called quantum chromodynamics that is universally accepted as the, the, the fundamental theory of the strong force. It's not bad. <laughs> By the way, if you look yeah. on the Nobel Prize site, it says under prize motivation for your prize uh, for the discovery of asymptotic freedom in the theory of the strong interaction. Is asymptotic yeah. freedom hard to explain? No, asymptotic uh, freedom, which was the key to showing that these equations are the correct equations and getting a lot of predictions out of them, is the phenomenon that uh, unlike for uh, the other forces, uh, the strong interaction actually gets weaker as the particles get uh, closer together or interact at higher energies. Uh, the, so uh, quarks have this funny property that when they are very close together, they hardly notice each other. But if you try to pull them apart, uh, they won't stand for it. <laughs> they get pulled back huh. together strongly. Uh, it's sort of like the forces of, uh, that you get with a rubber band. Okay, If you pull it hard, they, 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 it pulls back but it becomes flaccid when they're close together. Uh, mm. then, but, and, and, but you can't have rubber bands inside a nucleus. You, you want right. to have a kind of force that's uh, consistent with the basic principles of relativity and quantum mechanics. So in implementing that property of asymptotic freedom, that is, uh, the asymptotic refers to very short distances or very large energies that the quarks hardly notice each other or the gluons. Uh, 
that if we were led to very specific, unique equations, and furthermore, the simplicity of the behavior at high energies enables a lot of predictions to be made. So that that's where the asymptotic freedom is is absolutely key to unlocking what QCD is and then using it. <laughs> well, there's, well, we're jumping around the book quite a bit, but one of the things in the book is is talking about the ways. Um, incredible complexity can come out of some very simple rules. Yes. <laughs> and QCD is a great example of that because the fundamental equations uh, you can write down without loss of content on a t-shirt uh, <laughs> easily. Uh, and uh, uh, more, more objectively, I mean, you can write lots of things on a t-shirt, of course, but more objectively, <laughs> we, you, could write, you, could ex you can explain exactly what the equations are to a computer with a very short program. So it's absolutely trivial, for instance, compared to Word <laughs> or, or a modern operating system. The, the basic equations that govern how quarks and gluons interact and really what they are, uh, are profoundly simple. And yet, they build up protons and nuclear physics with all that complexity and how stars burn and liberate their energy. The big part of that story is from, from QCD. I mean, it's, it's, uh, well, it's one of the four basic forces and one of them, right. and That's... I think along with electromagnetism, probably the most important for ordinary matter. Uh, so yeah, so you from from, and electromagnetism also has simple equations. So from a few ingredients, in terms of uh, uh, different parts of matter and just a few laws, everything else gets constructed. It's as if you had have uh, very have Lego bricks that exist in vast quantities and can put be put together and taken apart and and make enormously complex structures. Although individually they're very simple, both in themselves and in their rules. Yeah. Yeah, because you you also say in the book that. Uh, elementary particles pretty much like once you know their mass charge and spin that's all you need to know about them that's right that's all you need to know and it's really all you can know a right complete, that's a complete description uh when you plug it into the machinery of quantum field theory uh it gives you a complete description of their behavior so in a, in a sense it defines what they are <laughs> yeah, but... so so these just these three variables for want of a better word effectively define every fundamental particle in existence yes. and the world <laughs> right <laughs> by extension the world <laughs> yes um so so uh, let's let's go, uh, talk more about what the book actually is because um it's a really interesting way of framing what's i mean the book is called fundamentals and it is a sort of it's a fundamental physics book uh it's but very accessible considering it covers pretty much all of physics by asking 10 different questions about or uh about reality and it's also well, and, and not just physics right just yeah. science all, all of existence summed up by the life the life the universe and all that you know uh carefully chosen questions and and, and quite also quite sort of unashamedly uh, sort of religious, ev evangelical about about science. It's a sort of you, you say in the introduction. It's it's kind of an attempt uh, to um, replace fundamentalism with a sort of scientific fundamentalism. 
Yeah. Well, I want to, I don't, I don't want to uh, enforce dogmas on people, but I want right. to expand their minds, help them expand their minds. Uh, and I talk about being born again to construct, to understand that there's a world model of the physical world that's extremely attractive and extremely has been extremely successful and powerful. And you can enjoy your world. It's, it's your world. You can enjoy your world uh, and understand it much better if you uh, explore a few basic insights and really uh, internalize them. Um, and that's, yeah, and those, I, are the, I, those are the basic insights I try to convey. I, I really love that idea of being born again. You, you talk again in, in the introduction about the book coinciding with the birth of your grandson and sort of trying yes. to see the natural world through the eyes of a baby who is yes. gradually, like every every day almost, is sort of learning a new thing about existence. Yes. It, and the babies, they do experiments. They drop things over and over again and check that they're still down, that they fall down and they're there. And, they, and, uh, uh, and, and you know, they, they move their hands around and watch so that they're just understanding that there are parts of the world that they can control through thoughts and others that they can't. And they uh, eventually figure out that there are other people who are somehow similar to them and have minds. And, and it's a fascinating process to watch. And it's a process of world construction. And so I was very impressed by that as I was writing the book. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also describing a world which seems on the face of it, very, very different from the world of babies. Babies have, but, and yet it's, it's the same physical world. The, the, the baby has, has developed rules of thumb that are adequate for understanding that the world is made of three dimensional objects around, and that you can navigate around and, 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 uh, understand what other people are and so forth. Uh, and those are very powerful rules, but they're rules of thumb based on ordinary sensory apparatus that we have and not very critical thinking. It's kind of just experience and, and uh, uh, not trying to be logically consistent or even think, think in quantitative or mathematical terms or augment your senses with microscopes and telescopes and magnetometers and spectroscopes and all the tools that uh, we have available to construct a more accurate model of the world. So uh, if you think about Okay, so you grow up from the baby, then you have the opportunity to construct a more accurate world model, a richer world model. And you uh, have a lot of help from scientists over over centuries who've, who've uh, developed the thoughts, but and and you can assess for yourself what the evidence is, uh, and you find if if you pursue that that. The physical world is quite strange and quite different from the rules of thumb that you have constructed as a child and you use in everyday life. And there's, 
it's a wonderful revelation, I thought, that, that you can be born again and sort of expand your mind in this fantastic way and understand uh, what reality is in a much richer way. You can augment your understanding of reality. And rainbows look more beautiful when you know what's going on. And <laughs> iPhones look like more fun, look more awesome and so forth. <laughs> Yeah, is it interesting even as you're learning that the things that sort of rules of thumb that get um, closer and closer to reality, but then the more you learn, you find out even those don't apply at all scales, like learning Newtonian physics in high school yes. and then realizing it's like, well, that's very good on some scales, but it's not actually the full picture. Either. Yes, like, that's, that's true. I, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but actually... Uh, if you live a life in science, you're almost guaranteed to have several opportunities to be reborn in a small way <laughs> by uh, having not only by learning things, but having to unlearn things. Right, it's, right. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I hadn't realized until this book that Newton himself had issues with his laws. Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, Newton was very disturbed by several aspects of uh, what he was discovering. I mean, first of all, he, he, he realized that uh, a lot was left out in his description of the world. He was very, very aware of that. And, uh, you know, famously, he indulged in alchemy, but really what he was doing was chemistry. He was trying, it was more critical than, well, he was trying to interpret ancient texts and take them seriously, but also he was doing what, you know, what we would now call chemistry, trying to make sense of it. And he did theological studies. He's, he really took written authorities very seriously. And he tried to make scientific sense of the Bible to do dating of when the events might have occurred, for instance, based on astronomy. So that's one aspect. The other, But I think what you're probably referring to is uh, that he was very unhappy that his law of gravity uh, was what we call action at a distance or, uh, you know, it's a, it's a force law that uh, describes one body acting on, or on another through empty space right. uh, with no intervening medium to convey the force. And in a letter to Bentley, he says that no one who's competent in philosophy could, could be satisfied with such a thing, to paraphrase. Uh, and so he, he, was, he, he tried to construct uh, models of gravity that were more fine-grained, that had a medium, but uh, those were not successful and sort of never escaped his notebooks. Uh, what you find in the Principia and, and what he documents in magnificent... Uh, the style and detail is that this uh, instantaneous force describes many, many phenomena uh, very, very well. And so, it, so he, but so he was satisfied. He was happy that he had found this description, and he was uh, he worked very hard to, sh to test its accuracy and and found very good results. Uh, but. He was not satisfied at a philosophical level with its foundations. And and now we know, of course, that he was on the right. He, his intuition was was right, that uh, uh, theories that are based on having space not a void, but filled with a medium, 
have been very fruitful in understanding electromagnetic phenomena, but also even gravity. That general relativity is based on the idea that space and time are a medium that can support gravitational waves, that can bend, that can uh, respond to matter in very flexible ways. So they're not a void in any in any sense. And, and gravity is transmitted as if it's through a medium. Yeah, I love there was a quote in the book that was uh, space time tells matter how to move and matter tells space time how to bend, which is like, that's, so yeah, that that's uh, John Wheeler's description of, uh, of general relativity, which is a very memorable, uh, very memorable, as you say, it's a it's a beautiful, memorable, uh, p- poetic uh, description. It, it, it needs it needs a little more filling in of detail, but, yeah. but, but it, it conveys something of the essence. Yeah, in, yeah in that won't get briefly. you through your finals. You'll, you'll need the equations as well. But yeah. um, but I that that still fascinated me as a just I I didn't know. I mean, there are lots of things I didn't know as I was reading this book, but I certainly had no idea. I thought Newton's laws were sort of he shows up a few hundred years ago drops these laws on the world and then everyone just sort of feels like okay physics is complete for a while until the 20th century rolls around and both quantum and relativity oh. theories happen oh but- no 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 the the historic the historical setting was quite different uh you know kepler had discovered laws of planetary motion and and galileo had described had uh had dis- found some important laws about motion here on earth uh so some of the idea you know there was a lot of ferment and ideas there about putting this together but maybe the most dominant comprehensive theory uh at that time was put forward by descartes which was a a a theory in which uh space was filled with uh vortices which carry and which carried around the planets (laughs) Uh, so he did fill space with the material and, uh, philosophers really liked that. You know, Aristotle said in the nature of, of, uh, of a vacuum and so forth. So people did have this kind of intuition that there should be a material that sweeps things along. Uh, but Newton, uh, devoted a lot of attention in the Principia to demolishing Descartes' theory. <laughs> and yet he was very sympathetic to the idea that uh, that there should be a medium. And the reception of the Principia at the time was not entirely positive, because, especially on the continent. I mean, there was some nationalism involved, but also there was, there was a philosophical feeling that uh, transmission of influence through empty space was somehow like astrology was not not mm-hmm. something that that the scientists that 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 was uh not something that respectable natural philosophers uh should indulge in they called it an occult force it was a cult <laughs> uh and it is you know it is kind of like astrology you have the action of distance things and uh that that uh, all of us uh, trans is transmitted immediately uh, with with no uh, nothing in between to transmit the force. I mean, the the ideal of a, of a of of people like Galileo, Kepler, and Descartes was that forces should be described 
as a kind of geometrical action, one thing pushing against each other, pushing against another, and to have one thing far away influencing something here was anathema. Right. <laughs> but Newton showed that it worked. You couldn't argue with the success. It was very precise. Or, uh, but, he, but he himself had his doubts. He didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so again, it's this sort of th- this idea of th- these these simple rules that he discovered that lead to this incredible complexity that yes work it makes yes. sense of the world that's correct yeah he he uh he found kepler's laws which were these beautiful regularities of planetary motion emerging as an approximation uh that happens because the sun is very much more massive than any of the planets so it's basically the planets moving under the influence of the sun but when you take into account uh, the, the planets can also exert gravity on each other, uh, you find the laws get corrections, and this leads to all kinds of complications. It's especially bad for our moon because uh, uh, it, actually the, the gravity of the, of the Earth is the dominant force on the moon, but it's also affected very significantly by the sun. And sorting all that out is something that... Uh, Newton said uh, he he devoted more time and a lot of space in the Principia to that problem, understanding the motion of the moon. And he said it was the only problem that made his headache. So <laughs> he, he made remarkable progress on it, but by no means uh, solved it. And, and it was and uh, work on that kind of problem, the three body problem, and more generally, what's called celestial mechanics, what we we use now to describe how satellites go in space and and plot their orbits and so forth is a, is very uh very much a living science and has been reinvigorated by the availability of high speed computers so as well as uh space probes <laughs> things mm-hmm. so so yeah so uh so and and it's all based on newton's laws and uh of motion and gravity which again you can write down very very simply but solving them gets you involved in solving those equations gets you involved in very complex situations very quickly <clears throat> right um so the the first full chapter and the first question is talking about sort of the scale of the universe but also the 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 scale of the inner universe the inner self yes. and the yeah yes so it's it's kind of it's almost trite in popular science to say that the universe is really big and oh wow the universe is vast <laughs> uh, and and but then you should ask compared to what uh, and it's comp- and and of course the 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 point of reference for most people is their own size their human body and that's the scale of most of everyday life but then if you think about that. Uh, you can make you can make comparisons in the other direction. The human body is vast on fundamental scales, the scales of atoms and molecules, and these units that can become very complex. Like even neurons, our, our brains contain hundreds of millions, uh, I think over a billion, if I remember correctly. Anyway, a lot of a lot of neurons, <laughs> each of which is power is a powerful little computer. And so, uh, although the universe is big compared to a human being, a human being is really big in ways that count also. So, uh, so I, the, the, uh, so my first fundamental 
the first key to understanding reality to me is that there's plenty of space and that should be meant there's plenty of outer space and there's also plenty of inner space yeah and, and then and then the same is also sort of true of time in that um yes yeah i'm very I, so time of course you can you can analyze through uh, radioactive dating and looking at stellar history and very many different ways that i describe briefly in the book because i try to give i try to give a sense of why we believe these things not just what the facts are but some sense some sense of why why you should believe it uh right. what, and what 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 it means what you know what these statements transform into operationally uh the uh so the universe but but the age of the universe in a meaningful sense is 13.8 billion years which is enormous on human time scales but again you should say uh that that's the answer to a certain question it's the age is very long compared to something the human time scale the human lifetime but the human lifetime is large compared to some other meaningful measure which is the speed of thought how many thoughts can you have in a lifetime so when i started thinking i was very i'm very proud of this i tried, tried to quantify <laughs> how many thoughts you can have in a lifetime which is kind of that's a pure number that doesn't depend on scale that's a number yeah. and, and it's a little fuzzy of course i mean what's a thought and uh but you can i i i think i made a very respectable stab at it and estimated that you can have several tens of billions of thoughts in a lifetime which is a lot more than one or two and, <laughs> uh, and is a very big number so so in a sense we have we we have uh, a lot of time so time is outer time is vast but inner time is also vast so <laughs> you, you, there are there are lots of little sides in the book to things from um uh from culture and sort of poetry and books and and yeah. just there was one little aside in that chapter that I really liked about uh I hadn't heard of the author Robert Forward, but uh he's a sci fi oh, yes. author. And Yes. Well he was he was a scientist and a sci fi author. He had some he was a very uh, imaginative, colorful guy, Robert Forward, and he wrote a couple of wonderful science fiction books. Yeah. And and, and you mentioned this book Dragon's Egg where Dr the the, the the science that it relies on, the the science that the story hinges on, is this life form that lives on a on a neutron star. So nuclear yes. chemistry rather than atomic chemistry rules. So they have larger um, nuclear chemistry faster. involves yes, much faster exchanges of energy. So right. essentially, they so. live at a, an incredibly quicker speed than and their thoughts are at an incredibly quicker speed than humans That's because right. of, because the interaction <laughs> of their particles are quicker. Yes, that's right. So when when the astronauts first uh, go there and and see that funny things are going on in the neutron star and realize that that uh, there's some kind of intelligence there, maybe uh, at the start, well, the the story goes back and forth between the two viewpoints of the astronauts and 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 the the uh, life on the surface. But at the start, the life on the surface is kind of comparable to our Stone Age, very primitive and and non-technological and so but uh within a few minutes of human time 
has become super advanced and they launch a spaceship and and go and and find the you and just and you know they've sensed these humans and go ahead the human spaceship and and uh um and visit and visit it rob the technology and go far beyond and so yeah it's a very entertaining uh story and uh, really mind expanding and and uh you know although it's it's fanciful this the basic principle is not crazy i mean nuclear chemistry really would work much faster than uh um than uh, electromagnetic chemistry that is chemistry as we know it and uh very complex structures could plausibly evolve on the surface of neutron stars that where lots of nuclei are close together and you can do nuclear chemistry yeah <clears throat> That's so who knows? It might even there might even be a neutron star somewhere where an advanced civilization is uh, struggling to figure out how to escape from the neutron star. <laughs> I'm trying to picture how they eventually play up, or you know, how they create the situation in which those things could interact with our uh, electromagnetic chemical people. Like I can't even well, they, how they would. They, the details of their technology are not really described. Oh, right. but, uh, <laughs> Somehow they can talk to but, us. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, once you know, uh, 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 you, you, the, uh, you're supposed to swallow, you're supposed to accept the idea that they've become very, very clever, very, very fast. Right, right. And then who knows? You can't, any, as Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right. <laughs> right. And he, again, Arthur C. Clarke was another oh, probably better known sci-fi author who based all of his works in very accurate fundamental physics. Yes, and science. that's right. And then, of course, you've let you imagine. Well, fundamental physics requires a lot of imagination to understand it. And then you, uh, but also provides a base for imagination to fly, as as uh, Arthur C. Clarke and right. and Robert Forward both demonstrate. Which again is something I like about this book. In that, that this book, you're you're not afraid to jump between a accurate description of the science that we know today, and then immediately follow it with a William Blake quote. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I'm very, I, I'm, I'm really trying to make science part of everybody's life, every intelligent human's being's life. <laughs> That's part of the culture and part of the way they think about the world. So it's an open invitation to uh, take our fundamental understanding uh, into your, into your uh, understand, into your personal understanding of what it's all about. And I, I, you know, I think I don't think science is something separate from other ways of understanding the world. It's it the, the there are synergies between them, and each illuminates the other. And yeah, they shouldn't they shouldn't be. It's it's really, although it's often done, it's artificial to me to separate them. And yeah. another aspect of that is that uh, while I'm presenting these fundamentals at the end of each chapter, I briefly kind of let myself go and describe how I th speculate about how I think my things might develop in the future. And yeah, what, what is what your means? What, what is what is your opinion of of the current state of the public's relationship with with science and the scientific method? 
Well, it's spotty, and that's yeah. <laughs> that's one reason. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, there there are some very there are many very you know I've I've met very very intelligent people who are not scientists, of course, and they're curious. And uh, they and one reason I wrote the book was to give them the real story, or let or let you know, give them access to the real story. Because there's a lot of confusing stuff out there that's not completely accurate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. let's leave it at that. Uh, and 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 also, it, it's that's one problem. And the other the other problem is well, there are several problems. But another another problem is that uh, uh, most popular science tries to talk about the latest and greatest developments and, you know, the, the latest cure for cancer, the latest unified theory, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but really what's remarkable about science is that it builds and that there are so many wonderful things to understand that are really sound that are really well established and the, the mm -hmm. fundamental principles of quantum mechanics and cosmology and uh, the idea that there are just a few forces and the and especially the idea that there's evidence for these things and what it actually means concretely in terms of observations uh and the power that it, it gives people to use their imaginations and control matter uh so I, so I, I wanted to convey that kind of meta message that, uh, it should the, be, that it's part of, it should be part of your conception of the, or can be part of your conception of the world and can really enrich it. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but, so there's more to it than the latest gee whiz, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, excitement that, uh, in the majority of cases will be, will be ephemeral. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On yeah. that same note, I love. Uh, I hadn't heard the phrase "interpretive ladder" before. Oh, which... I, I don't think it's been used before. Actually, <laughs> uh, there, there's a there is a widely used concept uh, in, in astronomy called the cosmic distance ladder, where uh, to get the distance to very distant objects, you get good control of the distance of things in your local environment. You know, using uh, modern uh, uh, techniques of bouncing electromagnetic waves around, for instance. Uh, and then you use that to, and some ideas about, uh, uh, how about Newton's laws and, and how, uh, how the regularities of, of stars that, uh, to, to make the distances a little bit bigger to, to, to that distances that you can't directly measure, but there's some overlap in in measure and things that you can get the distance in two different ways and they'd better be consistent ah. okay and then and then then you go to a, a, a di bigger distances and you do it again you go from you go from s stars to galaxies to uh cosmological distances and uh at each step you make sure you go to objects that allow you to go further but you have to make sure that in the overlap regions, everything is consistent. So there's this ladder. And in the microscopic world, it's the same sort of thing. Then, but that somehow that isn't, hasn't had a name as far as I know. So I call it the interpretive ladder of, uh, going to smaller and smaller distances and, and also, uh, uh, more and more complexity. So you understand reasonably complex things, then, 
they you have sound models of that you try to build models of more comp more complicated things but they better be consistent with the modeling you've done at the previous stage and typically you you know you put put subunits together and and yeah you 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 make ladders that uh-huh. uh to take you very far rung by rung <laughs> it's it, it's a lovely thought and yeah you sort of you're talking about um going from things like microscopy to uh, x-ray crystallography and so on that's right Drilling. and x-ray crystallography itself is a marvelous marvelous example that uh you start by so it, it it's a kind of image processing you get these images by scattering x-rays but they're not at all like pictures they're not formed with lenses that kind of make a reproduction of the scene just rescaled it's it's very very indirect encoded information that you get and you have to uh interpret it and it, you start with simple things that you have information about from chemistry or other or you can make solid guesses about what it is and then check them out and then that allows you to construct sort of small molecules and understand the motifs and then you get a little bit bigger you go to uh, macromolecules and proteins and they, and you gradually build up experience and understanding of subunits and build up to more and more complex things so it's a beautiful uh kind of uh, model yeah. or example of something that's very widespread then you analysis and th- synthesis you understand the uh, things that thoroughly at one level and that allows you to go to the next level or I, I also like to put it this way that uh, great questions lead to great uh, great answers lead to greater questions Hey, listeners, hope you're enjoying the interview so far. We are. It's it's our first Nobel Prize winner. Very excited about that. Yeah. Uh, oh. Very excited about learning as well. It's one of the first episodes in a while where we've had... Well, actually, we've had a couple of episodes recently with proper scientists on, proper smart people being properly <laughs> smart. Uh, but we also have a sponsor, as I'm sure you're aware, who gives you access to thousands of proper smart people being properly smart all, all across the full spectrum of learning. And I would say in a, a level of depth that we probably don't quite reach on this podcast. I- yeah, I, I'd say probably 24 lecture courses on <laughs> undergrad level subjects marginally pips us, but only Just marginally. By a tiny bit, by a yeah. tiny bit. And I, I'd also say like sometimes these lecturers who have been chosen both for their expertise in their subject and their skill at teaching are slightly more adept at these topics than we are. Just a tie again, a little, every, little bit. Every marginally, margin, yes. it's it's like hair, it's razor thin margins. But you know, sometimes at the elite level, it's those razor margins that count. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's like it's the difference between Usain Bolt and whoever came second to Usain Bolt. <laughs> that's that's who we are as a podcast. The the person who came in second to Usain Bolt, yeah, who's still very good at running. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. No, no slouch. Uh, and uh, you too could learn how to be very good in running and all subjects. I don't know if they have a specific running course. I doubt they do. I'm but guessing they put... no, there isn't a running course, but I haven't looked for it. And yeah, but, but most they do the time, have courses on various forms of, of on various physical things, including you know, guitar playing. Uh, yeah, as we've established, anytime we've thought of something on the uh, on the ad reads and then looked it up, um, we've been surprised at how many things that we thought of that 
uh, you know, aren't, aren't just like typical college courses that have courses in the Great yeah. Courses Plus. And, and since this week we're covering all of science, we are delving into a new course by the Great <laughs> Courses Plus called Radio Astronomy, Observing the Invisible Universe. Explore the thrilling yeah, is... worlds of pulsars, quasars, and supermassive black holes with an active radio astronomer. None of that passivity in our radio astronomers that we normally have. This, this guy is at the cutting edge. I mean, he actually is. I'm, I'm taking the piss, but like he's yeah. like the, it's the lecturer is is Felix Luckman, who is the Green Bank Telescope's principal scientist at the Green Bank Observatory, which I've heard of. That's a proper place that I've heard of. He's the principal scientist there. It's a fa- it's a facility of the National Science Foundation. So proper yeah, that's stuff. The, that's the caliber of, of lecturers they have for, for anything you want to study here, which is, you know, things like building a better financial plan, controlling stress to make it work for you, living sustainably, as we said, playing guitar. But yes, radio astronomy, this is a great course that shows how there's more to the universe that we can see. And the fact that everything emits thermal radio waves and if our eyes could detect those waves, it would never be dark. It's just um, a really great way to do a deeper dive into into what's out there in the universe. So you can, by the way... Oh, uh, just by the way, while we were talking, I was just searching. There isn't a specific running course, but there is changing oh. body composition through diet and exercise. Oh. Uh, there's physiology and fitness, which includes 12 workouts de- designed by a renowned fitness expert. There's how to stay fit as you age, how to boost your physical and mental energy. God, they, we, we've never... I don't think we've yet found something that they don't have something close to on it. And you can you can experience all of these lectures, have full access to their entire library, which is expansive, for free for 14 days if you go to, to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. So once again, to try it out, to check it out, to check out the range of incredible courses on just about every subject, that is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. Check it out. Oh, also, fun fact. Did you know the aforementioned Green Bank Observatory contains uh, one of the largest movable objects on land? I did not. The Green Bank Telescope? Yeah, fun fact. Anyway, go go get yourself some courses. Get smarter in 2021. Yeah, and some of that same concept apply. There are principles like locality that, that allow you to then build these smaller things in, and define how the entire universe works by only looking right. at how things interact with things close yeah. to them. But speak, I wanted to ask earlier about that. How, how does gravity sort of not violate that principle of, of locality? Or, or is it just... Well, that- Newton's, Newton's theory did, <laughs> as we discussed before. You had action at a distance. Uh, general relativity does not. It has... Uh, uh, the, the force of gravity is, uh, is done by, by warping space. So in, in the space... The, so matter makes a dent in space, and then the, the, since the space is bent, it bends the nearby space, and so forth. So, so you get a kind of dent. It's like a uh, like in a mattress when you lie down, you leave a dent, <laughs> or an elastic medium when you press down, you leave a dent. And so uh, that's and, and that that dent in space time is what what other particles see, and it affects their motion, and that's that's what we. Uh, in the equations of general relativity, that's how gravity arises. So it's very much a local theory. And uh, the the ultimate implication of that in some ways, or the epitome, the epitome of that, uh, is that this uh, space-time can sort of take on a life of its own and support propagating disturbances. 
that we call gravitational waves. So as just like an elastic medium, besides you can make dents in it, but also if you bang on it, it'll ring, it'll make sounds. And that's because you can have oscillatory waves that propagate out from your disturbance. Right. As we've uh, talked about before in the podcast, we had people who worked on, on LIGO actually before, before they yes. successfully uh, detected the gravitational waves and after. And it's... Yeah, that's a marvelous story. And yeah, <laughs> and, and really, it's another example of the idea that uh, great answers lead to greater questions because the technology as well as the fundamental science that goes into making LIGO possible is just awesome. You, know, you, need, you need lasers, you need uh, uh, technology to interpret some very complex data. So you need computers in a, in a big way. You need uh, sort of the ultimate shock absorbers that shield, <laughs> shield, uh, shield from vibrations. And then, of course, you have the fundamental science of how gravity waves get uh, uh, produced by colliding black holes and so forth. You know, just extraordinary uh, predictive power that comes out of the, the equations of general relativity and our understanding of advanced astrophysics with neutron stars. And so, so all this stuff had went into the design of a detector, which was supposed to pick up very, very small, subtle signals. And by God, it worked, right? Yeah, it's crazy to think the, the distance that they have to shoot that beam and then over that distance, what a tiny fraction of the yes. width of an atom they have to, to, to take yes. the deviation of. It's, yeah, there's this yeah, so, two black holes colliding eventually cause a ripple that's a fraction of a fraction of the size of an atom. That's right. Yes. Machinery. It's about one ten thousandth the radius of a nucleus. So, <laughs> That's <laughs> crazy. In in two in in two mirrors separated by four kilometers. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah, you you talk about the, these the these four principles of science. That again, this was principle three is the one that Newton couldn't work out why his or wasn't happy that his his theory didn't satisfy but the idea that the locality yes yeah one of the, number one is the basic laws describe change and then the basic laws are universal they are local which is the problem that newton had with his and then they are precise yes so you know the, they sound those that sound so simple <laughs> so, <laughs> uh and sa sound so maybe even obvious uh but they are very far from obvious and could have been false. I explain quite a bit of thought experiment if you think about uh, what might be the future. Uh, and some people even think it's us, but I don't think so. That, 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 uh, we're, that you have intelligence embodied within a, an engineered computer. Well, if you have intelligence embodied within an engineered computer, it's the programmers and the designers who make up the rules and the rules don't have to be local. They, in, you know, in many computer games, the interactions are not local. Uh, you have magic, <laughs> you have miracles, you have, you have astrology. And so, uh, so, so it's easy to think of worlds in which uh, these principles would not be true, but they are in our world, as far as we can tell. Um, can we talk a bit about... Uh quasi-particles yes please because <laughs> quasi this is something that you had quite a bit to do with 
And yes, yes, and it's uh, well, it's been a very exciting story in just in the last few months. Uh, that, but why don't you why don't you ask? <laughs> okay. Well, start start the discussion. Be- <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's firstly I'll, before I get carried away. And how do they <laughs> right. how do they fit into the general picture of physics as we know it and science as we know it? Okay. So quasi particles are uh, an idea that arises in the description of matter. You know, lumps lumps of matter. Uh, so solids in particular. Uh, in empty space, we've found that it's very convenient to organize our description of what goes on in terms of different elementary particles and their interactions. For many purposes, that's an extremely useful description, especially when you're working uh, at very small distances, very precisely in the quantum world and so forth. And when you uh, examine say, a, uh, a lump of silicon, <laughs> uh, that's a kind of world in itself. And the laws of what goes on inside the silicon are uh, conveniently, it turns out, very conveniently described also in terms of particles, the particles that are local concentrations of energy that have characteristic properties inside the silicon, but those particles are quite different from the particles that, that you use to construct the world models of uh, what goes on in empty space, the fundamental particles. They have a kind of integrity of their own, different properties. So, for instance, uh, you have electrons inside a material, and inside the material they have, because they're interacting with the material all the time, they have a different effective mass uh, and uh, but more, most more dramatic is the is this phenomenon. If you take an electron out, you even extract an electron from a material. Very often, in many materials, you find that uh, the hole you've left behind kind of settles down into a particle of its own. So it's a localized concentration of energy that can propagate around and has a kind of integrity with reproducible properties. And you can make many of them because you could have taken out an electron in many different places. So for all intents and purposes, it's an elementary particle if you lived inside silicon. And in our description of what goes on inside silicon, it's a very useful building block. Uh, So those are called holes. And they're very different. In, in, in empty space, we have protons as the units of, of uh, positive charge. In materials, you have these holes. And so they are, the, the, they are very, very different from protons in all their essential properties. They're not made out of quarks. They're typically much lighter than protons and so forth. So they're kinds of quasi-particles. Uh, Wow, that's in other <laughs> in other states of matter in other materials you can have quasi particles with all kinds of behaviors. Yeah, so that's that's you- a very fruitful concept, and then you also get the idea, which we may or may not want to pursue, that maybe our world is a material, and we what we think of as particles can also be fruitfully thought of as quasi particles within a busy bigger structure. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So in that example of the electron hole, if an electron is then replaced back into that hole, does, does it go back to having the original properties it had with, with the electron in the first place? 
or I guess well, typically if you combine them, uh, energy will be liberated. I mean, if you combine them just very gently and just right, they would just it would the electron would just plug up the hole. But typically, if you if you're careless about it, or what happens tip, more typically inside the material, you bring an electron hole together, uh, ec- energy is liberated. And this is an important uh, element of how LEDs work. Light, uh, light, you, they produce light. You, you, you combine electrons and holes, and they combine, they liberate energy. Say, so, so they settle down, but in the process of doing that, they liberate energy uh, in the form of light, and that's often, and that, that's, that's, that's the way you can make uh, useful devices like, like LEDs. That's the basic phenomenon that underlies LEDs. So holes are not just uh, fun. I mean, not just interesting, but they're extremely useful. I mean, that, that, that they're absolutely essential in the design of light emitting diodes, of transistors, of all aspects of uh, uh, microelectronics that dominate our world today. Holes are, it's very, very important to have positively charged particles that you can manipulate much more freely and that more are uh, cheaper to make than protons. So it's not just a different way of describing a positively charged ion. It's, it's, it's no, 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 no. Yeah, it has qualitatively different features. Really, quali- yeah, absolutely qualitatively different. Huh. It's, it's not made of quarks. You know, it really should be thought of as its own, uh, given its own dignity as a, <laughs> as an independent concept, right? But like a, just a neutral um, atom, you remove an electron from it. Would you? Would it be best to describe the behavior of what remains in terms of thinking of it as electron? It can be. It, it can be if if you're dealing with uh, what's called an inert gas, one of these. Uh, I'm sorry, inert gas atom. <laughs> that has a closed shell and you take an electron out of that, uh, what remains is, 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 is usefully described as a hole inside the electron distribution. Hmm. Yeah. So that, that, that concept can be used there too. <clears throat> uh, amongst the bigger revelations in the book, there are little facts along the way that I didn't know. I, I didn't know. Maybe I should have done that the only reason why electrons are considered negative is because of Benjamin Franklin. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So uh, Benjamin Franklin was a, a great pioneer uh, in the early days of electricity. He, uh, he was actually, you know, he was quite an accomplished scientist. He made re- real fundamental contributions to, to electrical science. And, uh, and actually, that's part of what made him successful as a diplomat. He had a lot of credibility in Europe because he was, a, you know, this exotic colonial guy who had actually done something at the at the pinnacle of, of scientific culture. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, he, among other things, he pioneer, pioneered the idea that there were two kinds of charge, positive and negative charges that mutually attract, but uh, but repel among themselves. Uh, and uh, he had to decide which, which is positive and which is negative. And for reasons that I don't really recall, or if I ever knew, uh, he decided that, uh, and I also don't remember which it is, but you rub cat's fur on 
glass and what's left behind is negative charge, I think, or uh, I don't know, <laughs> but, but, Obviously. but, but, uh, but he had some way of, of, uh, identifying which, which ones, which, which kind of electricity should be positive and which negative. And, uh, the choice he made was such that electrons have negative charge. And so, and, you know, people adopted that convention long before they knew about what, and that there were such a thing as electrons. And so we're stuck with it. So even, even though the electrons are, uh, probably the most important charged particles, the most commonly used and the most dynamic and, and dominate chemistry, uh, so it seems strange to have them their charge being negative <laughs> instead right, of the basic right. plus one. Uh, uh, we're stuck with it. Yeah. By the way, can we start the rumor that, that the origin of the word cation is because? Of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have access to a cat. You can start it. I don't think yeah. it's true. <laughs> I do right now have access to a cat and a window, so we could experiment with this. <laughs> See which way around it is. Um, also, while we're talking about coining certain uh, fundamental particle names, I don't think we can let this interview go without mentioning that you managed to name a particle after a laundry detergent. <laughs> That's the axion. Yes. Okay, but but let me but just to round off the quasi-particle, since we were started started down that road, I'm very pleased to share with your audience that uh, a different particle that I named and whose properties I predicted. Uh, called anions uh, were well the the basic prediction was made in 1984 and the decisive observations just came about uh, this june <laughs> so uh, we wow. now we now have a new kind of really qualitatively new kind of quasi particle that uh, exists in certain exotic materials in two dimensions and these these kinds of quasi particles are remarkable in that they have a kind of memory, and people hope to exploit them for quantum computing. So, that, well, that sounds like a thing that um, some woo people are going to misinterpret to mean that when you <laughs> sing to water, it changes the way that it behaves. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, yeah. I, well, I mean, science science can sound fantastic, <laughs> and. Uh, it's very important to separate to 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 ground uh, ground your predictions and your fantasies in observable reality. I think <laughs> I, I try to. I, uh, when I say ten keys to reality, I meant I mean it. I mean I really want uh, I, I want to emphasize that these are you know you you can use. So, science to support fantasy and in fact you have to use enormous imagination to understand the strange world we've discovered but it's only science if if uh, it actually does describe reality right uh, well, we had the the same thought when when we first had uh jana levin on the show who was one of the people who wrote a blurb on the for your book but yes, both of you as a friend you you both work in fields that the vocabulary has very much been stolen by the pseudoscientific. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I, I, yeah, well, yeah, well, 
stolen. <laughs> stolen is the right, the right, uh, the right word because we're 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 going to take it back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but just going back to the the um, I, that must be the most. I can't think of anything more satisfying for a theoretical physicist than to have your predictions be confirmed or demonstrated by experiments decades no, later. No, there's nothing. There really is nothing like it. Well. I, I don't insist on the decades. I mean, I was very pleased that QCD was, for instance, relatively fast. Uh, <laughs> to although you know, really, the evidence got better and better. But but you know, those of us who were inclined to believe got a lot of encouragement early on. Uh, and uh, in the case of the anions, I was very very confident in the theory. Uh, so I was sure that once the, once the experimental technology was up to it, that this is what they find. But I was, I've been shocked at how long it's taken. And it was extremely pleasing that it actually happened. And there's nothing like it. It's really fantastic. And, and these particular experiments are extraordinarily beautiful. Um, could you, could you briefly talk about what the experiments entailed? Yeah, so <laughs> the experiments were in something called the fractional quantum Hall effect, which is a kind of material that uh, is a two-dimensional electron gas uh, subject to a very, or a state of matter, I should say, that uh, uh, is realized when you have uh, electrons confined to a plane, sort of between two other materials and you have a, a sort of an electron gas in between subject to a very high magnetic field and at very low temperatures and very high purity so you get this very unusual state of matter where the quasi particles are anions and what that means is that there's a very unusual kind of interaction as one of these quasi particles moves around another we call that braiding because the the world lines make braids and knots and uh this this interaction leads to uh kind of interference patterns uh that that is what's actually observed so uh when the 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 quasi uh, there are two possible paths for the particles to go and so for say so, so, so suppose you have an anion in the middle and another anion that wants to go around, it can go in either above it or below it, and those two possibilities combine to give the total result. And depending on how many anions are in the middle, you get a different result. So that and we make you know quite precise predictions for the effect of having one or more or less anion, and that's that's what they observed. So that that's the base. That's the basic thing. Uh, on the Wikipedia article for anions, there's actually an, a, a GIF animating this concept with, where that plane, that plane is moving forward in time and the two particles have formed like a helix oh. behind them. I just put yeah. it in the show notes. I could, okay. I could, okay. I don't know if, is, is that a good, is that, do you, do you approve of that um, visualization? Uh, if you look at the I haven't, link, I, just, I haven't seen it. But, oh, I just yeah. put it in the show nice. notes. If yeah, you, I could see it in the chat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's very cool. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> we will link to that in the show notes if it helps anybody. I'm, I'm going to look at this picture now uh, as well. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, well, what were you going to say about naming the um, subatomic particle after 
uh, detergent, the other one? Oh, the axion. Okay, that's a different particle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, and there, um, that goes back to my uh, undergraduate days when I was home from college and went grocery shopping with, with my mother. And uh, I, I noticed on the shelves there was this laundry detergent called Axion. And at the time, I was kind of flirting with the idea of going into physics or, or uh, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but physics was certainly one possibility. Uh, and I, I, said, I said to myself, gosh, that really sounds like a particle. <laughs> it would, uh, it, you know, it's, it's Greek. It's ax, axi is, like a clear, you know, I knew about axial vectors and axial this and that, uh, axes, uh, that, uh, and it's nice and short. It would go together with pion and proton and you know, all these ons, mm-hmm. uh, ion. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I said, gosh, that really sounds like a particle. And then, you know, if I ever get a chance to call, <laughs> to name a particle, I'll, I'll use that. <laughs> and then a few years later, uh, there, there was uh, a theoretical proposal, which is a, a theoretical idea, which is very uh, compelling, I thought, that uh, uh, suggested the existence of a new kind of particle that had very unusual properties. Uh, and so I got to fulfill my my wish. And it was very convenient that this particle was introduced to solve a problem in which an axial current was involved. Mm. So I could tell the, the editors of Physical Review Letters that, okay, I'm, I'm introducing this name because there's an axial current and it's kind of cleaning <laughs> up a problem. Uh, Not just because it looked you know, like it, washing powder. No, it's no, like... I, that, would ne- that would never have gotten past the, uh, the, uh, the so, reviewers and editors. So They're is, very is that sort of the... So, but I got theor- to, I snuck it in and it's become yeah you know, it's absolutely become the uh, the standard name. <laughs> is that, that the sort of physics the physicist version of looking at something? Oh, that would make a good band name. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, very much so. Absolutely. Yeah. Just goes in the back of the notebook <laughs> and years later, right. that's that yeah. just pops out. Yeah. But now you know, as you may know, and is certainly uh, described uh, in in. Uh, meaningful detail in the book uh axions now are a very popular and plausible candidate to be the dark matter of the universe they have all the right properties to supply this dark mysterious dark matter that cosmologists need and so it's a very exciting frontier of fundamental physics and cosmology to see if that they are in fact the dark matter and and ironic that it was named after something that whitens (laughs) (laughs) yes i guess so the committee keeps shooting down my tide pod particles even though they're delicious (laughs) i don't know why they don't um we, we we should wrap things up soon but um i i'd like to ask you just where you see the next stages of fundamental science going or because you make predictions in the book and on where these various things are going up well what do you think is what do you think are the most exciting fields of science that well i think this search for dark matter is a very well-defined exciting frontier there you know it's certainly out there and i 
you know, of course, I have a personal interest in, in axions, <laughs> but but uh, I think it's very plausible, and we're we're starting to build detectors that have a chance of actually just, uh, observing it if if it's true. Uh, so that's a very exciting frontier. You know, it's kind of narrow, but but pretty awesome. Uh, I think the uh, I think to me the most profound uh, problem that's sort of on the borders of boundaries of physics is the question of how mind emerges from matter. Uh, I think we have. A lot of conceptual tools and instruments that will allow us to really get a grip on that problem and start to have some important answers. Uh, we also, of course, are building minds. <laughs> and uh, another great frontier is to build new kinds of minds. Uh, and uh, the whole quest for a quantum computer, which would think very different from uh, from our minds. and presumably me much better at quantum mechanics, I think is, is a wonderful frontier. And then another one I'll mention is kind of expanding our sensorium. Uh, you know, the, the, the senses we naturally come equipped with are reveal only if we now know, we reveal only a small part of what's out there of reality. Uh, and we have fundamental limitations in that, uh, in, in visualizing quantum mechanical processes and understanding them. And we're very visual animals. So uh, being able to con convey that kind of information visually and develop intuition about them and to augment our senses in general, I think is a wonderful uh, frontier of science that that's underexplored. And another one, <laughs> one more, one more. Please. Uh, I think this, I should have, yeah, I, uh, I think this is my standard list, actually. The, the, the other one is a frontier of engineering that to me is woefully underdeveloped, is uh, self-reproducing self machines that are sort of more like, bio, that would work more like biological development, where you have exponential proliferation of, uh, of s units with, with variation, that would kind of uh, you know, produce uh, produce uh, wonderful <laughs> uh, uh, possibilities for making new kinds of materials that uh, would would do all kinds of things. Or you know, you can even think about terraforming planets or uh, building uh, computers the size of mountains. That, that make themselves kind of so super giant brains. Uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> I, I, so so that, that that's a kind of engineering that I think uh, biology uses, and but human engineering has barely scratched the surface of it. <laughs> that, yeah, that'll be that's it, fantastic. We're see it develop. Yeah. 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 Um, we 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 will of course we'll link to the various ways you can buy the book in the show notes and again i i i, I highly recommend this book it's a, a remarkably readable book considering how many well fun to fund i'm trying to avoid using the word fundamentals given that it is the title but how, how much essential science and the building blocks of the universe you explain in this book in an extraordinarily accessible way uh so we'll, we'll of course yeah. link to that but um where else can our listeners 
find you and find things you've written and access you? Oh, well, I mean, it's not... Well, first of all, my webpage, <laughs> frankawilchek.com. Then you can click around and find links to my, uh, you know, my scientific papers, but also uh, uh, my popular writing, many other things, uh, uh, including videos and... Uh, so that that that's probably the best place to start. But you know, if you do a Google search, you'll get all kinds of stuff. Just Google search on my name, and, and you can click around, and there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but well, the best, the but but by far the best, I think, way to start is is the web page because that's curated and and uh, yeah has has we, a certain logical structure to it. <laughs> we will link to that, and I, th uh, I think you're you're a relatively frequent tweeter as well. So we'll so we'll... it's. Yeah, well, I, I used to be <laughs> a few years ago. I, when I started with Twitter, I was very enthusiastic. Now I tweet much more intermittently, but I enjoy it. And yeah, so that, that and I, I talk, uh, uh, say, I try to say smart things there and not not blab too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, th thank you, thank you so much for joining yeah. us, and thank you All for right. being our. Thanks for being our okay. debut Nobel laureate as well. All right. And again, the webpage is frankawilchek.com. It's very important to have the A. Uh, otherwise, you'll get, to, you know, you'll get to some uh, fake page. Oh, is, is there a, there's a rival <laughs> I don't know. Wilczek. I don't know what you'll get to, but you won't get to the I think you'll get to one of my university pages or something. No. But the frankawilchek.com is the one you want. Uh, <laughs> I think. Oh, I, th I think someone has now fixed it. So... Oh, okay, good. Could be wrong, but no, yeah, it may it may just redirect you. So that will yeah, work. I think someone has yeah, now yeah. fixed it. So the Frank Wilczek right. goes to Frank A. Wilczek. <laughs> Fine, all right. It's all it's right. been reclaimed. Um, all right, very good. <laughs> so you, yeah, so you don't have to remember the A. <laughs> so yeah, you're you're all sorted. All right. Although I think there's no harm in saying it multiple times, so it really sticks in people's mind. We, we'll right. we'll of course link to it as well in the show notes. Both. All right, thank you. Thing. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And yeah. once again, the and book is called is called Fundamentals: Ten Keys to Reality. Yeah, and I think I think this this interview, you know, as. Uh, diverse as it was, really does convey something of what the book is will will the experience the book will give you. Well, well thank you. And again, yeah. I, I uh, loved it. I really enjoy it. So I I really uh, highly recommend you. listeners you go out and get this book. Okay, uh, thanks a lot. Frank, thank thanks you for, for joining us. us. We really appreciate. Bye it. now. Bye. Bye. Have a good one.